Good morning again. You can go ahead and find your copy of God's Word in whatever form you have it with you today and turn to our scripture reading for this morning. We're going to continue our series looking at some very foundational concepts of life from the very early parts of God's Word, which today means Genesis chapter 6. And so if you could find Genesis 6, and I'm going to go ahead and read to you um, the beginning of a very familiar story, and it starts in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. I'm not going to go on and read the rest of the story. I'm going to assume today that all of you know at least the basics of the story of Noah's ark. So we're not going to go into detail about the events of the rest of chapter 6 or chapter 7 or chapter 8. We know that Noah obeys God, and Noah builds this huge ship. We know that he and his family, after many, many, many years of construction, eventually enter the ark along with a representative pair of of the animals, each of the animals. We know that God sends a massive flood that wipes out all remaining life from the face of the earth. That after the waters have subsided, many days later, Noah and his family exit the ark with the responsibility to repopulate the earth with a a few new ground rules as to how to govern themselves and with a precious promise from God not to destroy the world again in this way. And that promise is sealed with a rainbow. I think those are some details of the story that you probably all have heard at some point uh, in your life. If not, and it's the first time you've heard the story of Noah's ark, you might be saying, what in the world? Um, Because it is kind of crazy, but it's true. It really happened. I think of this story every time we give our grandson a bath at our house um, because we all, and you, maybe you do the same thing, but he has this plastic ark to play with and it floats around on the surface of the bath water and he's got two giraffes and two hippos and, and I think two elephants and there used to be a little Fisher-Price version of Noah. I think he got lost at some point along the line, but it's really all about the animals, right? Um, but Noah, when he was there on the ark, he was always smiling and enjoying his fun, you know, nautical adventure on the ark. And because this story lends itself to this kind of treatment and because we share it with our kids and because when we share it with our kids, it's kind of like a fun little trip to the zoo, right? Uh, We tend to forget that, that this is not a fun story. This is a harrowing story. This is a traumatic story. It's a very sad story. I want to read to you, you don't need to turn there, but let me just read to you some of the words from Genesis 7 and you can just listen and take in what's happening here. 
Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. There are a lot of themes in this account of of Noah, a lot of things we could sort of trace through this story, but the most obvious theme and the foundational idea that I want to remind you of today is the idea of judgment judgment. Now, we've talked about a lot of things over the course of this series on foundations. We've talked about humanity. We've talked about creation. We've talked about relationships. We've talked about sin and brokenness. We've talked about rest. Uh, But probably this is the one that is going to be the most somber sounding of all of them, and that is as it should be. But judgment is a reality. God's judgment is a reality. Judgment is not a fun word. We don't like the word judgment. It's, It's certainly not a popular word in our culture today. It may be even more unpopular than the word sin. And it's an element of God's character that we've heard about, but we just assume forget about if we, if we could, because we'd rather really, most of the time, we'd like to forget about the whole idea of judgment, right? I say most of the time because we want to forget about the idea of judgment, except at certain times when we think it would come in really handy, right? Like I could be motoring along the highway and some maniac could come flying around me at 95 miles an hour, weaving in and out of traffic, endangering my life and the life of my family, endangering other lives on the highway. And what do I think at that time? Where's the cop when you need one? Right? Where's the judgment when it needs to be here? Of course, I rarely think that when the blue light goes on in my own rearview mirror. Or, or when I look down and I catch myself going way faster than I, than I thought I was, our desire for judgment is a very selective thing, isn't it? We really like it sometimes, but not most of the time. And as we think about this idea of judgment in relation to this account of the great flood of Noah, what I want to do today is I want to make some very, very general observations for you. Observations that you may or may not, you've probably heard them, you probably believe them, sort of. You might not You might not have thought a whole lot about them, but they're very important for us to understand and believe. You'll see what they are when we get to them. But as we go along, we're going to look at these general observations, and I also want to look at some points of of contact for us, some points of application, not just when it comes to the sinfulness of the world out there. We will talk about the sinfulness of the world, but also when it comes to the sinfulness in our hearts and lives as individuals and as a church, even as believers, and what the word judgment means to us, because it does mean something to us. And my first observation is simply this, that our sin is much more serious than we think it is. Our sin is much more serious than we think it is. And there were many words I could have used. I kind of stuck with the word serious because it it covers a lot of different things. But I could have said our sin is more pervasive than we think. It goes deeper than we think. Our sin is more corruptive than we realize. It's more infectious than we realize and it's more destructive than we realize. Sin is a horrible thing, and God hates it with a passion, and he wants his people to as well because of what it does to his creation, what it does to us, what it does to the people that he loves and the people that we love. Let me read verse 5 slowly. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil 
continually. There's not a lot of room for optimism in that verse, is there? There's not a lot to grab, grab onto. And if you think about it, you know, yeah, that was the time of Noah's Ark, but you know what? We have the same disease that those people had. We've got it too. We've got that sin disease. Our sin is great in its extent. It's great in its frequency. We do it a lot. It characterizes our whole lives in many ways. It's great in how, how deep it goes into our being. It is so great that sometimes it seems to take us over completely. Our sin is like a stage four cancer. In fact, I'd, I'd call it a stage five cancer because it's worse than cancer. It's serious. It's beyond that. The theologians have a, have a, a phrase, at least some theologians have a phrase that, that describes uh, our, our condition in sin. And you've probably heard the phrase. It's not a very happy phrase, but it's the phrase total depravity. Total depravity. You may have heard that. And there are a couple dimensions for this. I need you to know what it means and what it doesn't mean. But for one thing, total depravity teaches us that we are utterly unable to save ourselves that we are utterly unable to solve our own sin problem, that we are utterly unable to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and fix ourselves and change our lives and to become good people and to turn over a new leaf. It cannot be done because sin has that much of a grip on us. We are like people struggling in quicksand. And there's nothing to grab onto. There's no rock that we can put our foot on. There's no branch we can reach out to to grab. There's no special ability that we can call upon to, to find our way out of this quicksand. We can't pull ourselves out. We need, we need Lassie, right, to go get Timmy to get a rope to throw to us because there's a way of saying that we need help from the outside. We cannot solve our own sin problem. We can try, and sometimes for a while it looks like we're doing okay, and we can exert all of our power to try to be good people and to try to get ourselves out from under our sin, but ultimately all we're really doing is struggling in the quicksand and digging ourselves a deeper and deeper hole. Another thing that this idea of total depravity means is that, that every part of our being, every part of my being, every part of your being, is affected by sin. Every part. Total depravity does not teach us that every single person is always as sinful as he or she could possibly be all the time. It doesn't mean that everything you do is always sinful. It doesn't mean that everything that, that, that people who don't know Jesus do is always sinful. That's not the case. We are not as sinful as we possibly could be. But it does mean that every part of us is influenced. It means that our sin, it goes deeper. It's more than just, you know, we think about sin, we think about a few sins that we commit or what the words that we said or actions that we performed or forgot to do or whatever, and we think about it as kind of messing up. Well, sin is messing up, but it goes much deeper than messing up once in a while, and it's very clear here in the passage. Our thoughts are corrupt. Our minds are corrupt. Sinful ideas and plans occur to us very naturally, especially when we're kind of under the gun and we're, we're dealing with tension and pressure and relationship problems. You know what kind of sinful thoughts come into your heart and into your mind, and we can't always think straight. We really can't. And you know what? That's easier to see. Often you see other people acting in their sin, and you realize that there's a kind of insanity there, that they can't really think straight. It's easier to see in other people, isn't it? But it's hard to see in ourselves. But it's there. Our minds are affected. Our hearts are affected. Our, our emotions are affected. Our, our intentions, it says, are evil. Our motives are corrupted such that even when we do good things, we often find ourselves doing them for selfish reasons or for the wrong motives. And that's because our self-image, our ego, our reputations, our drive for pleasure, our safety, our stuff, our own personal security. These things are more important to us by nature 
than other people are or that God is or that caring for anybody else is. And so our natural response is to tear others down when necessary so that we can be built up. We're nice most of the time and we're civil most of the time and we, we put on a good front, but there's something very corrupt going on in there and we feel it coming out of us. Our agenda too often rules the day. We don't submit to God's direction. And of course, that affects our behavior. The world in Noah's day, it says this several times, as it is in our day today, the world was full of violence. Is our world full of violence? Yeah, and this is completely insane. This is irrational. Violence is not rational. It doesn't make sense. Brutality is irrational. But it is the very rational response or result of people forsaking God and then being given over to the selfishness and darkness that is in our own fallen hearts and minds. It happens. So observation number one is simply that sin is in various ways more serious than we realize. Observation number two is this, and I think this is also very clear from the passage, that there is a limit to how much sin God will tolerate. There is a limit to how much sin God will tolerate. And I wonder sometimes if we believe this one. I really do. I wonder sometimes if I even believe this one. Because we know that God forgives, right? We know that God is a forgiving God. We know about Jesus ultimately, but we know that it's in God's nature to be forgiving. But does that, does that mean that God can let sin go on indefinitely, either in a society or in your life or in my life, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian? Can God let sin just go on? I would submit that he won't. That there is a limit that can be reached to sin after which God will act. He will do something about it. Part of this, as we see here in the passage, is what it does to God's heart. I don't know if you caught that before, but look at what it says. It says, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. God's heart is broken. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Sin had reached a tipping point in the heart of God, in the very heart of God. It hurt him. The grief and pain that God was experiencing moved him to action. And the axe fell on humanity. And this really happened. This really happened. It happened in history. One day it started to rain. This happened. It's not a fable. Romans 1 in the New Testament. And you probably read through this chapter, but it describes a, a, a situation very, very similar to what we have here in Genesis chapter 6. Except there, the highlight is on another emotion of God, if you will. It's on God's wrath rather than on His, his pain and grief. In Romans 1, describing the pagan culture of, of that day and describing our culture largely, uh, it says there that people have suppressed the knowledge of God. We've talked about this a few weeks ago, that everybody really knows that God exists, but many, many people have suppressed that knowledge. And in His wrath, in His holy anger, God has given them over to the darkness of their own corrupted minds and hearts. So God may be holding back the ultimate expression of his wrath and his anger in that he's not taking the earth and just hurling it into the sun. But in leaving us to our own devices, in pulling back his, his hand, if you will, and allowing us to kind of be who we can very much be, allowing humanity to kind of run the show God is showing us that a tipping point has been reached. That is an expression, God taking away that protective hand and God allowing us to, to reap our own, well, the, you know, the, the, the results of our own minds and hearts. That is God's wrath. Paul says, God, it doesn't say God's wrath is going to be revealed. In Romans 1 it says God's wrath is being revealed. 
it is being revealed. Now, what's the evidence of this? How do we know this is happening? What can we, what can we look to? Well, you might look around the world and say, duh, I mean, obviously, we're in a mess. But in the ancient pagan world of Rome and Romans chapter 1, when the sinfulness of humanity reaches a turning point, it results in widespread sexual perversion, especially homosexual practice, not just in the actions of people, but in the open approval of that activity by many, many people in society. Now, I want you to know something. Those are not the only sins mentioned in Romans 1. There's a lot of other ones. We also find envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, pride, and it goes on. The sexual perversion that is so highlighted in Romans 1 that we read about there is not really the cause of God's wrath. It's really the result of it. It's really the upshot of it. It's a warning light to the Roman world of that time, that things have gotten way off. And the fact that our Western culture today has taken this even farther than the Romans did, even to the point today of denying the division of humanity into men and women, is an indication that God has begun to express His anger by pulling His hand of protection back from the Western world, which includes the United States. The warning lights are indeed flashing red, folks. Now, it is not my intention, please know this, it is not my intention to ridicule anyone who is here today or demonize anyone here today or anyone you may be close to, because I know a lot of you know folks that are struggling with this, anyone who is struggling with same-sex attraction or struggling with gender confusion, those are real things, they're painful, they're real issues. It is not my intention to ridicule or come down on, in a sense, anyone in that situation. But it is my intention to say this, and I, I hope that you're able to share this with your friends and people you know that are dealing with this, that it is right to battle those inclinations and not give in to them. Amen. And to point out to you that these things are but a logical consequence of a society that has rejected the very idea of a personal and wise creator God. Because if we are not a special creation of God, a wise and personal creator, then Pretty much anything goes, right? There are no boundaries. And God, I believe, is now putting us on notice for our sin. Not just those sins, but for all of them, because He does indeed have a tipping point. There is a tipping point for a culture. There is a tipping point for a nation. There's a tipping point in history, and we've seen it happen in many... Rome is not around anymore, not the way they were. But there's another side to this idea of God reaching his tipping point with sin that maybe is a more positive spin on it in a sense, and that's this. God refuses, and we see this here with Noah, God refuses to let sin completely take over. He won't let it happen. Which is to say, he refuses to let righteousness disappear from the earth. And obviously, Noah is a clear testimony of that. We see that in the way Noah's walk, the way Noah lives his life. I want you to think about it, though. Think about this. We know that God, because we're Christians today, we know the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, so we know that God eventually sends His Son, Jesus, into the mix, right? And that Jesus dies for sin. And we know that, that, that we don't do anything to earn that salvation, but it's all because of what Jesus did. And so you might ask yourself, well, why, why, why did God bother with all of this trouble of working with guys like Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and, and, and all these fallen people. In fact, why did God bother to use all these, these thousands of years with the nation of Israel and all their crazy ups and downs, mostly downs? I mean, could, couldn't God have avoided all that? Couldn't God have said, look, let's just let it all go to pot. 
Let's let, let's let sin just have its way. Let's, get, let's, let's let it take over 100%. And at some point along the line, I'll send Jesus in. And he can, he can die for sin. And he can preach. And he can call people to trust in him. And we'll do it that way. But why do we have to deal with all this time and all these people in between? Because that's just the way that God said he would do it. That's the way that God works. When God declared, and Wes told us about this a couple weeks ago, but when God declared war on Satan, basically in Genesis 3.15, he said that the serpent's head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. This implies a continual stream, a continual pattern of descendants of human beings that will be unbroken and out of which will come the Savior of the world. And God meant that to be a righteous stream. I'll say it this way, Satan was not allowed to win by taking over 100% of humanity, even though probably at the ark here, this is as close as he ever came. There would always be a Noah. There would always be an Abraham. There would always be a Moses or an Elijah or a Josiah or whoever it might be. Jesus was not going to come on the scene out of nowhere, just out of the blue. Jesus was going to be the culmination of a long stream of men and women who had obeyed God, who had defied Satan, and who even though they were sinful, imperfect people, these people had kept righteousness alive on the earth. It hadn't gone away completely. And so with this guy Noah, what God's doing is he's drawing a line in the sand and he's saying, this far, Satan, and no further. You can't have all of humanity and you can't have him. He's mine. See, if this were a football game, you know, some of you were probably watching some football yesterday. God, in Genesis chapter 5 and 6 here, is still playing defense. He does not have the ball. Satan has possession of the ball all the way through Genesis 5 and into Genesis 6. And in fact, God does not start moving the ball in the right direction. He doesn't go on the offensive, if you will, really until we get to Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. So you know what, you know what Noah is? Noah is, is God's interception at the goal line because Satan is not allowed to get into the end zone. He's not allowed to take over 100%. And God is going to have to employ very radical tactics here even to save Noah even to preserve the human race at all. I went back and I looked at an old sermon I preached on this passage like 10 or 15 years ago. At the time, my mom had recently gone through some, some pretty harsh chemotherapy because of her cancer. And I, I, I had described the Noah's Ark story as God's radical chemotherapy for the human race. And you know what chemotherapy does to someone's body, right? You know what it can do even while saving a life. The flood was like that. The flood was damaging. It was devastating. A lot of good things got wiped out in the process. But in the end, the patient was saved, if only through a very painful ordeal. But that's because God was determined. God was determined to preserve righteousness on the earth. Okay, now that's, that's the big cosmic story of Noah and the ark and what was going on in the heavens and in the big picture. But let's... let's Let's start putting this together a little bit and bring it down to earth so we can see what it means for our lives. Our sin, yes, is indeed serious. We know there's a limit to how much of it God will tolerate, which means there is a moment that he will act in judgment. And we've talked a little bit about what judgment looks like for a culture or in our world as a whole, but what does this judgment look like in our lives? What does it look like in the lives of individuals? Well, first of all, Excuse me. Let me speak to those of you who have 
not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because the message to you is very simple. It says this. You don't have forever to respond. You don't. You don't have forever to respond. One day your time will run out. It might be when you die. It might be before then because you never know when your heart will harden completely to this message. When Jesus, in the Gospels, in Matthew and Luke, when he talks about Noah, he talks about how the people of Noah's time didn't really believe judgment would come. They were just sort of marrying and giving in marriage. He says they were living their lives as if nothing was happening and nothing was wrong. But then, suddenly, the world changed. Your world is going to change. One day it will, my world will change. Our world will change. Judgment will come, and when it does, we just need to be ready. And Peter in the New Testament also talks about Noah, and he uses Noah's story to remind us that when judgment does come, God knows how to differentiate between the righteous people and the unrighteous people. And I don't know how righteous or how unrighteous you think you are or what score you would give yourself on the righteousness quotient, you know, between zero and 100, but it doesn't matter. Because the only righteousness that will qualify anyone to escape God's judgment is the righteousness that comes not through our own efforts, but through Jesus Christ. That's the only righteousness that works. Only His righteousness can save us. Only Jesus' righteousness can withstand God's judgment. It's the only righteousness that qualifies. So the question is not how good am I or how bad am I or what's my score on the, on the holiness scale. The question is, do I have the righteousness of Christ? Do you have the righteousness of Christ? Have you come to the end of yourself? Here's how you get it, okay? Have you come to the end of yourself recognizing that you can never be right with God on your own merits? But you're sinking in spiritual quicksand and you need help from the outside. Your sin is telling you that. All the results of it are, 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 are crying out to you. You need help. You need someone from the outside. You need Jesus. And then have you encountered the incredible love of God? who gave his son Jesus Christ to die for you, who sacrificed his son so that you could live, so that God's righteous judgment would not fall on you as it should have, but instead fell on his own son. Have you responded to that love by making Jesus the Savior and Lord of your life? That's a huge question. If you have never come to this realization, if you have never made this decision, you have a limited amount of time in which to make it. The opportunity will not be there forever, and only God knows when the last time happens. Only God knows when is the last time that you'll be able to respond and when your heart will be completely darkened. I hope that you'll take this warning seriously because it's a real thing. Do not wait until it's too late. Your sin has the power. Right now, the sin that is in your life and in my life, your sin has the power to corrupt your heart through and through. It has the power to keep you separate from God from all of eternity. And that's what will eventually happen in judgment if you are not forgiven. Christians, let me speak to you. Those of you who know Jesus, let me say this to myself as well as to you. I think we've become very laid back about this topic. I fear that we don't really have a lot of urgency when we see our family and our friends and our neighbors living and ultimately dying without Christ and going into eternal separation from God. I think Noah would counsel us otherwise. Noah realized that the time was short, and so he acted. He 
he acted in obedience to God. Most of you know what urgency means. Most of you have had something happen in your own life or in the life of a family member, and you know what it's like to pray with urgency. You know what it's like to just throw yourself into that prayer and to really have urgency in talking to God. Let me ask you, does this characterize how you pray for your unbelieving friends and family? Does this urgency characterize maybe how you pray for the nations, for the billions of people who haven't even heard the name of Jesus in any kind of relevant way? Are you praying for them in, in, with the context and with the understanding and in the knowledge that, that this is not going to last forever, that God will not wait forever, but that one day the axe will fall. One day judgment will come. That's the story of Noah. That's the lesson of Noah. And then Christians, still talking to you, when you think about the word judgment, you may think that the word judgment has absolutely no place in your life because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So that's true. So your sins are covered in Christ, so you think, well, what's judgment have to do with me? Judgment is still very much a reality for those of us who are believers in Jesus. It just takes a slightly different form, and it has a different purpose. See, here's what's going on. Just as God showed us through Noah that he would not let Satan take total control of his world, God will also not let Satan take total control of your life. He won't let Satan do it. He's promised that your life will not be absolutely taken over by your sin. God will only wait so long, and then he will act. Judgment will happen. Now, your judgment will probably take the form of what we might call a revelation, or really what I call it is a warning. A warning, okay? Let's say that you have an issue with alcohol, but you don't think you do. And yeah, you've been maybe drinking a little bit more regularly lately, but it's not really a problem you don't realize what's happening in your life right now and how that's actually taking control. God may arrange a DUI for you. That'll be judgment. You may have fallen into a habit of viewing pornography and you feel guilty about it from time to time, but, but you know, you've kind of relaxed into sort of a pattern. God may arrange for you to get caught by someone, your spouse or your boss. Judgment. You may have gotten very harsh with your kids or your spouse. You'd never admit it was abuse, but that's what it is. God may arrange for that person to move out. These are examples of how God uses judgment to warn us, to reveal things to us about the seriousness of our sin because he doesn't want the sin taking over our lives. God will, God will sometimes get even more radical with, with us. He may even take something away from you if that something or someone has become more important to you than your relationship with him. I believe there are times when God will actually take the life of a Christian rather than see his beloved child come totally under the control of sin. God allows things like this to happen to us not because he wants to hurt us, but because he loves us too much to let that sin continue to rule our lives. And so he will, make, he will take whatever steps he needs to in order to expose it and deal with it. Even if it seems like, you know, spiritual chemotherapy at the time, God will act. Now, all this talk of judgment can make God seem rather harsh, rather inflexible, rather unyielding, right? And yes, God does want us to know that our sin is serious, that it has the ability to destroy us. God hates your sin and my sin with a passion. He will not abandon us to sin if we know him, no matter 
what he has to do. But I want you to look for one last moment at the end of Noah's story. And I want to read you these verses. So turn to chapter 9. The ark has landed. They have come out of the ark. God has told Noah that he's got the responsibility of starting a new civilization, basically, and repopulating the earth. His family is there with him. And God says in, in 9, starting in verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. When we think of a bow, you think of a bow, you might think of, um, you know, like a pretty decoration on a Christmas present. Or you might think of a pretty decoration in a girl's hair. But, but a bow is primarily a weapon. That's what a bow is. God here is saying, look, I'm laying down my bow. I'm laying down my weapon. God here is making a promise of peace. That, yes, even though the human race will continue to sin, God will never again wipe the earth clean like this. And every time we see a rainbow, we can be reminded of God's wonderful promise. And every time God, God says it this way, says every time I see the rainbow, I'll remember my covenant. I'll remember the promise I made to you. You know, a rainbow is a beautiful thing, isn't it? I lo- I'll sit there and stare at a rainbow for half an hour and not even blink. You know, I, when I'm driving down 52 and there's a rainbow over in the east or whatever, I sometimes have to be, I'm tempted to look through the back of the car to see the rainbow because I love looking at it. It's such a beautiful thing. But you know what the most beautiful thing about a rainbow probably is? That it's not pointing at us. Have you ever thought about that? It, it, it's a bow, right? Like a bow that you'd shoot an arrow with. If God wanted to give us a reminder of our sin, he might indeed have, left, have, have designed it in such a way that the bow pointed at the earth as a continual warning of what he might one day do with us by letting the arrow fly once again. Instead, the bow points upward, reminding us that the only reason that God can make this promise of peace with us is that he himself took an arrow to the heart. The ultimate judgment for our sin actually pointed back at God himself, just like that bow does. And the ultimate price was paid in heaven. The ultimate price was paid by God through Christ. God is indeed a God of judgment, as the story of Noah vividly reminds us. But the end of the story here reminds us of the testimony that we see throughout the rest of Scripture, that God is also the God who received judgment. The God who took judgment upon himself in the person of Jesus over the course of six lonely and horrible hours hanging between heaven and earth. There are two ways for a person to meet Jesus face to face, and we all will. 
I hope and pray that when you meet Jesus someday, you will not cower before your judge, but that you will run confidently and joyfully into the arms of the Savior who was judged in your place. Let's pray as elders come forward and we prepare to celebrate this new relationship we have with God.